Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, although not the verses that are in your bulletin, and that is entirely my fault. Earlier this week, when sending the scripture, I just sent the wrong verses. I didn't change my mind. This is not any late-breaking adjustment. It was just a failure on my part. We'll be hearing from Genesis chapter 1, but beginning in verse 26 and going through verse 31. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles or simply to hear these words from the creation story as we hear of God's purpose for creation. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the, la- of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air. And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The sixth day. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Before I really get into this passage, I need to let you know that to talk about today's scripture, I have to do some theology. Now, some of you think that theology is a code word for talking about things that don't really matter, but uh, I need to use some theological terms here. And I need to use two words to describe God that used to be pretty common. In fact, for the first 2,000 years or so that Christians spoke about God, we used these words. But over the last 100 years or so, and especially in American Christianity, for whatever reason, these words have somewhat fallen out of fashion, and you don't hear them quite so often anymore. But if I'm going to talk about God today, I have to talk about sovereignty and simplicity. And I'd like to explain what I mean by those words from the very start. Say that God is sovereign is perhaps a little bit more familiar to most of us. It's to say that God is almighty, that God is king, that God is not limited by any other power. God does not owe allegiance to any other power. There's no one who tells God what to do. God does what God wants. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God gets what God wants. And when I say that God is simple, that may seem more difficult. God does not seem very easy for us to understand. But when we say that God is simple, it is instead to say 
that God is one thing. One of our oldest creeds, the Nicene Creed, says that God is one substance, which is to say that God's not like us in the sense that God is not a bundle of contradictions. And what we mean when we say that God is simple is what we are describing when we say that God is holy, that God is faithful, which is to say that God doesn't change God's mind about God's promises. If God promises it, God intends it. God does not change God's purpose. Another name for God's simplicity is God's glory. From the beginning to end, the scriptures describe God's presence, and their favorite image of God is not of some man with a white flowing beard like we often see God depicted in paintings. No, the more common image of God in the scriptures is an image of glory, something that is like a tangible light. A light so pure and so unwavering that it can almost be overpowering. One of the great hymns of our tradition captures the simplicity of God perfectly by saying, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. There's no shadow mixed in to God's light, and there is no time when God changes God's purpose. So when I talk about God's sovereignty and simplicity, this is what I mean. God gets what God wants, and what God wants does not change. And having established that, I'd like to go back to today's scripture and focus on two things that stand out to me. First, that God creates and calls the creation good. That seems important to me. It's important for us to say that God has blessed creation and called it good. Because there's an old folk theology that says this world is not terribly important. Maybe you heard the phrase that I heard often growing up in the South that says that earth is just heaven's waiting room. That kind of theology doesn't leave much room for understanding what clean water or a healthy forest or a beautiful song or a football game have to do with God. In this theology, these things only matter if they teach us a lesson about how to get away from earth and into heaven. A song is only valuable or good if its lyrics are instructive. In a sport, is only valuable if it teaches us how to be disciplined. This kind of theology is always very suspicious of joy because this theology is always afraid that we might like life too much, that we might come to love the creation more than we do the creator. And this kind of theology doesn't tend to care or talk much about how we work for the good of creation. It doesn't have much to say about the health of our forests and topsoil and our water and our air or our community parades or our schools or our neighborhoods because it assumes that God is just going to obliterate all that when God burns the world and takes us out of it into heaven. And this is a massive mistake on many levels, not least of which is that when God made the world, God said it was 
good. On day six that we just heard about, when everything was done, God said, it is very good. It is supremely good. God loves the creation. God takes delight in creation. And God cares deeply about everything that God has made. Jesus said, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny in the market? And yet, I tell you, not one of them falls from the sky without our God knowing it. And when we read the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the very first thing that stands out is that it is good. All of this was made to give joy and delight. We were made to make the creation grow in its goodness. Genesis 2 will go on and it will say that the Lord God took Adam and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. We were made to cultivate the good stuff. Beauty and food and art and home and healthy rivers and forests and air and laughter and everything that gives delight. Which brings me to the second thing that stands out about creation in Genesis. Us. People. Humanity. All creation is good, but there is something that sets us apart. Genesis 1 says that God made us, quote, in God's own image, male and female, he created us. And of course you will, I hope, notice that Genesis chapter 1 says that the image of God is not reserved for only one gender, that neither gender is an afterthought in this account of creation. All creation is good, and there is something about us that is unique. We are made in God's image. And today, I want us to know what that means. I assume that none of us thinks it means we have a physical resemblance to God. That it's not about whether or not we have long flowing beards or bear any genetic resemblance. Folk have argued in all manner of ways about what it means to carry God's image. But as Methodists, we insist that bearing God's image means two things. It means that we were made for sovereignty and simplicity. We are made for sovereignty. We just heard from Genesis 1, God said to them, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves, every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, every tree that has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. We are sovereign in this very practical, political sense. And every one of us can testify to the ways that this is true. There is no other part of God's creation that has done more than humanity to shape the creation, to change and redirect not only our planet, but now even our solar system. We are sovereign 
in the sense that we have been given a kingly responsibility for the creation that God calls good. But we are also sovereign in the original theological and most basic sense. We Methodists call this free will. God is sovereign because there is no power in the world that can stop God from getting what God wants in the end. And we were made for sovereignty because we are meant to live in perfect freedom. We are meant to get what we want. We are meant to have our heart's desire. And we are meant to live as though nothing can stop us from getting what we want. Because, of course, we are made to want God. Or to put it another way, we were made to love God. And if our love is going to be anything like God's, it's got to be sovereign. It's got to come from our own choice. Genesis 2 will go on, and I bet you've heard the story. It insists that we have always had the choice, the sovereign choice of whether we would honor God or not. Genesis 2 locates that choice in the presence of a tree that, people, that two people could eat from or not. John Wesley put it this way, man was made to enjoy perfect liberty, to be the sole Lord and sovereign judge of his own actions. We were made sovereign because we were made for love. God didn't want to force us to love him. God did not want to compel us to love him. God wanted us to love him from our own desire. If we pursued God out of fear, or if we pursued God because we had no other choice, that would not be love. And God being love wants love. And so God made us sovereign. And God also made us in God's image by making us for simplicity. God meant for our desires and our will to be one thing, one substance. God did not mean for us to be constantly balancing one desire against another. Like I do almost every day when I think to myself, I want that donut. And I want to fit into my pants. We were not made to live with these conflicting desires, but we were made for all of our desires to come from a single desire called love. And again, John Wesley puts it better than I can. He says that in the beginning, man was what God is, love. Love possessed man without a rival. Every movement of his heart was love. It knew no other fervor. Love was humanity's vital heat, and the flame of it was continually streaming forth. From the beginning to the end, the Bible says that we were made for simplicity, to have one pure and holy desire. We were made to be holy and perfect and faithful. We were made to live by a love as pure and untarnished as gold. And so when we say that in the beginning, God created, and that God created us in God's image, we are saying that you are made to be sovereign and simple. You are made to want one thing above all, and you are made to get that thing. 
to have your heart's truest desire. And you may never have guessed that about yourself. You are made in God's image, but it may be that you have spent more time living out someone else's image. Maybe you end each night comparing yourself to an image of manhood or womanhood or an image of motherhood or fatherhood. Or maybe the story that you tell about yourself depends upon an image that someone else set in front of you, an image of you holding a particular person or a particular job title or a possession or a trophy. Maybe that's the image you are trying to make yourself into. Our images, if they are not the true image in which we were made, will not satisfy, but they will possess us. Several years ago, a writer followed around a tennis player named Michael Joyce. And Joyce was obsessed with becoming a pro tennis player. At age 22, Joyce was one of the hundred best tennis players in the world. And the writer noted that even as Joyce had become a master of his sport, it had also mastered him. The writer said, Joyce is a complete man, but in a grotesquely limited way. But Joyce wants more. He wants to be the best, to have his name known, to hold professional trophies over his head as he patiently turns in all four directions for the adoring media. He wants this, and he will pay to have it, to pursue it, to let it define him. And he will pay with the regretless cheer of a man for whom issues of choice became irrelevant a long time ago. At age 22, already for Joyce, it is too late for anything else. He's invested too much. He is in too deep. We Christians, of course, have a name for chasing after images that are not God. We call it idolatry. And we insist that idolatry is evil, not just because it disrespects God, but because idols take away our sovereignty. Andy Crouch wrote an amazing book about power, and he said, this is the biblical critique of idolatry. The more I serve the idol, the, more, the less agency I have, the less dignity I have, the less capacity I have. Idols trap us. And they make us less free. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are trapped by the image of who you are trying to be. Maybe you feel like you have no choices left because of the choices you made a long time ago, because of the powers that you let into your life the powers that you let govern your decisions, the powers that you said you belong to. 
Maybe they leave you feeling as though you have no choices left. Or maybe you've given up on wanting anything. Maybe you've given up on all images. Maybe nothing controls you. Maybe you are chock full of sovereignty, but you have no simplicity. Maybe you feel like you chase after one desire, and when it does not satisfy, you chase after something else, and then something else. And maybe you've done what you want so very often that you no longer know if you want anything. Maybe everything in the world seems like a scam. The politics, relationships. Maybe you've spent your time running from thing to thing and now you don't even know what you're running to. And maybe you've given up on the idea that anything could be truly good. If you find yourself trapped by your desires today, or if you find yourself stuck with no desire at all, the good news is that you were made for more. You are made in God's image. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, there is something within you that is God-given to help the rest of us know God. You were made for sovereignty and simplicity. You were made for freedom and for wholeness, for power and for glory. And when your freedom and your own choices have fallen into chaos, The new creation begins when you know this. God chooses you. God wants to know you. And God made the world and called it good, not least because it would contain you. And you bear the image of God. And today, whatever choices you have made, Whatever you have wanted and whether or not you have gotten it, God is giving you the freedom to choose him all over again and make today a day of new creation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.